Hannah and I like to watch crime shows. We like to try to pick up different clues throughout the episode and try to figure out who done it before the episode ends. And you can usually count on one thing in any crime show that you watch. There is always going to be an unexpected twist. And so we try to guess where this twist is going to be, where the writer's going with this story. Sometimes we're right, and sometimes we are nowhere near right. I guess that's why they didn't ask us to write these stories. But it's a challenge to get into the mind of the writer and figure out where the author is going with this episode, with this script. If you were to take that same approach with the crucifixion and to find out who's at fault for Jesus' death, you'd have to look in a few different places. For starters, there's the Roman soldiers who nailed him to the cross, an obvious place to start. Surely it must be their fault, right? But you zoom the camera back a little bit and you find out these soldiers are just carrying out their orders. So maybe it's the person who told them to go and crucify Jesus. It's his fault. So is it Pilate's fault then? The one who hands him over? Well, if you look at the scripture text, you find out that Pilate didn't want to kill Jesus. Over and over again, he tries to get him off the hook. But it was the Jews, the crowd, that said, crucify him. So maybe it was their fault that Jesus died on the cross. But someone brought Jesus to the Jews. Maybe it was the Jewish leader's fault who brought him to the Jews and incited the crowd to say, crucify him. Or maybe it was Judas' fault, one of Jesus' 12 disciples who betrayed him for 30 pieces of silver. Or if you pan back just a bit further, maybe it was sin's fault. Maybe it was your fault and your sin and my sin. And so it's my fault as well. But here comes the unexpected twist. In John chapter 19, verse 11, when Jesus is talking to Pilate, and Pilate is telling Jesus, don't you know who's talking to you? I have the power to let your life go, or I have the power to crucify you. And Jesus tells him, he says this, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. And earlier in John, Jesus says these words, no one has taken my life. No one has taken my life from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. So the question is, who done it? Who's at fault here for the crucifixion? Open up your Bibles with me to Isaiah 53, verses 10 through 12, and we'll see another answer to this question. This Easter Sunday, we celebrate the fact that he has done it. Isaiah chapter 53, verses 10 through 12, and I invite you to stand out of respect for God's word. Isaiah 53, verses 10 through 12, reading in Jesus' name. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Father God, these are your words, and your word is truth. We pray, Lord, that you would sanctify us in your truth here this morning. Thank you for the work that you have done. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Now let me start off by clarifying something here. Every person who I mentioned before in the introduction did, in fact, play a part in Jesus' death. They're not off the hook for the part that they played either. 
But to say that it was just them, that it was just Pilate, that it was just Judas, that it was just our sin, is a false statement. On the other hand, to say that it was just Jesus wouldn't be completely true either. The truth of the matter is it was both an act of God and an act of man, and we have to see both of them. And on Friday, we gathered together here to worship and remember again the crucifixion of Jesus, and we looked at the part that man played. But let's look at it from another angle this morning. Verse 10 identifies our angle this morning that we'll see. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. We read about the Romans who were carrying out this torture that Jesus endured. And Isaiah points out that it wasn't just the Romans that had a hand to play in this. But it was in fact Yahweh, it was the Lord who was also there and who was also acting. And Yahweh was there crushing his son, crushing his servant. And Jesus passively endures it all. And Isaiah explains once again why this act was necessary. Why the father needed in fact to crush his son. The text says if he would render himself as a guilt offering. I know this has been emphasized already this weekend over and over again, and I will continue to emphasize it for as long as I'm here. But it's good to see it again. That God was there at that cross, acting in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. That Yahweh is there pouring out his wrath for sin upon his one and only Son. Jesus was indeed the guilt offering. The one who was offered once and for all, for all time, and that one offering by which all of us and all people were sanctified, and by which our sin has been paid for. It's been atoned. The Lord was pleased to crush his son. And though it must have been painful to see his son suffering there on the cross, Isaiah points out that the Lord was in fact pleased. He was pleased because sin is finally paid for. He's pleased because all debts are finally paid up. He's pleased because no one owed him anything anymore. All accounts were paid in full that day for all time. It is finished, and he has done it. God's wrath is satisfied, and the guilt offering was accepted. But the Lord wasn't pleased just because the debts had been paid. He has everything. He doesn't need anything else. But he is pleased because of what that means. For his son, what that means for the rest of the world. For everyone else who's ever lived on this earth. In Romans chapter 3, there's a verse that most of us know by heart. Romans 3.23 says this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we recognize that truth, that all have sinned. We believe it, we teach it, we confess it, and we share that with other people to make sure that everybody knows that each one of us are sinners. And I'm no different than anyone else here this morning. I am a sinner too. And that's good that we teach it. That's good that we emphasize this biblical truth. But don't stop there. Don't stop with just chapter or verse 23. The verse continues on. That sentence continues on. Verse 24 says this, Being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Paul's point in writing that verse, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, isn't just so that we can tell someone that they're a sinner. Paul's point in writing that verse is to say, yes, you are a sinner, but Christ has done something to fix that problem, to solve that problem. He's saying because of Christ, because of the guilt offering which he rendered, 
all are justified as a gift by his grace. The death of Jesus was to justify all. This is the point he's making in Romans 3. And look at verse 11 of our text. What does Isaiah write in this verse? As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. And by his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. This morning, we remember the fact that he has done it. Good Friday stands as a completed act in history where he has borne the iniquities of the many. He has borne the iniquities of us all. As verse 6 in that chapter says, the Lord caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon him. And so he has justified the many. He has justified all. He has done it. And it stands in the past as an accomplished, finished truth, a fact of history. And there never has to be another sacrifice for sin. There never will be another sacrifice for sin because sin has already been paid for. That sacrifice has already been made. It's already been dealt with. He has done it. The servant has justified the many. But more was needed. This death of the servant as a guilt offering wouldn't be enough. If he died, even if it was in our place, and even if it was for all of our sins, which in fact is a scriptural truth that we agree with, but if he stayed dead in the grave, it would all be for nothing. It wouldn't mean anything. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, and you are still in your sins. If Christ were still lying in the grave, what are we doing here? We're just wasting our time. But we're here together, and we come together each Sunday morning to celebrate the fact that the resurrection has happened. And as Isaiah writes in the second part of verse 10 of our text here this morning, he is alluding to this fact that this servant will suffer, this servant will be cut off from the land of the living, but he's not going to end there. Verse 10 makes that clear. He will see his offspring. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. If the servant remained dead, he wouldn't be able to see his offspring, let alone even have any offspring. As Isaiah writes about the Lord prolonging the days of his servant, he is alluding to this fact here that this servant wasn't going to stay in the grave. This servant will indeed, in fact, rise again. And the resurrection is exactly that. And in fact, the Lord is continuing to prolong his days as Christ continues to live, never to die again. This final servant song began with praise for the servant and with confidence knowing that he will prosper. And here again in verse 10, even after his death is prophesied, Isaiah writes that the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Even after his death is prophesied, he will prosper. Today again, we celebrate the fact that he has risen. We celebrate this prospering of which Christ has accomplished. Our gospel lesson records the words of the angel in Matthew 28. And don't be afraid. For I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He's not here, for he has risen. Just as he said, go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And so Mary and Mary went and did that very thing. And the disciples went and did that very thing, that he has risen from the dead. We have firsthand accounts of this happening. 
And Scripture tells us that there were over 500 eyewitnesses who saw Jesus in the flesh after he died. They saw him alive once again. It's one of the best attested and documented facts in ancient history. He has done it. Jesus continues to see his offspring as he is risen from the dead. He is not dead, but he is alive. The Lord has prolonged the servant's days. The servant's work on earth has been accomplished. He offered himself as a guilt offering. He's justified the many, and he has risen again. And this song ends with the servant's reward. Therefore, because he has done all of these things, and because he's been faithful to the point of death, even death on a cross, I will allot him a portion with the many, with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Paul writes in Philippians 2 that God highly exalted him, the one who came as a servant and the one who obeyed to the point of death, even death on a cross. And as a result, he gave him the name that is above every name. He gave him the name Jesus. And as we remember from the birth of Christ, his account, his name was to be called Jesus because he will save his people from their sin. And in Ephesians, he writes that God seated Christ at his right hand, as Keith read for us this morning in Ephesians chapter 1, and seated him in the heavenly places and put all things under subjection or in subjection under his feet. The spoil of Christ's faithful obedience and his, are his exaltation, his ruling and reigning, his sitting at the right hand of the Father even now. And he continues to see his offspring, people who come to him by faith but not just seeing his offspring. The text says that he divides his spoil with the many. He divides this spoil. He divides his inheritance. He divides his reward with the many, the many whom he justified, the many whose iniquities he bore. And part of that reward he shares with, he shares with us is our forgiveness of sins. There isn't anything you or I can do in order to forgive us of our sins but Christ has paid that penalty, and he offers us freely the gift of forgiveness of sins. He offers us freely his righteousness. He offers us his work, his life, and his death as well. His death and resurrection accomplished our forgiveness. And so we don't have to wait for eternity to find out that we are forgiven. Brothers and sisters, it is yours in Christ right now. You are forgiven. The prolonging of days that were given to Jesus as well, eternal life, is something that he shares with each one of us. And that's, again, not something we have to wait for us to die before we experience. We get to experience that eternal life even right now. It's ours in Christ Jesus. You are alive because Christ lives. He shares with us his work, his death, his life. But there's also another thing that Jesus shares with us. He shares with us the Father's satisfaction. The Father is satisfied in Jesus' work. And as we are in Christ, Jesus shares that spoil with us too. God is satisfied with you. God is satisfied with your works. And God is pleased with you. As you are in Christ, this is something we experience even now. And this is what Easter 
is all about. This is what Easter celebrates. It's celebrating everything that God has done in order to save you, and that's more than just the forgiveness of sins. He sent his servant. He crushed his son. He became the guilt offering. He justified the many. He rose again and was rewarded for his work, and he rewards his gifts to us as well. It's not something that's new to you this morning. It's something that we've already confessed this morning together as a congregation. And we confess it the first Sunday of every month when we say the words of the Nicene Creed. When we talk about what we believe about Jesus Christ, we say these words. I believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ. And he eventually continues on and says, Who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven, was incarnate by the Holy Ghost of the Virgin Mary, was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate, He suffered and was buried, and the third day he rose again according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and is seated on the right hand of the Father. Why did he go through all these things? For us and for our salvation, for you and for your salvation. Christ went through each one of these things so that you could share in his reward. You could share with the spoils the Father gave to him. And that's what we celebrate this morning, that he has, in fact, done it. Hallelujah. Praise be to God. And it all sounds so good that this servant came and that he came for you, that this servant died and he died for you. He lives and he lives for you. And in him, we see our death and we see our life and we see our reward as well. And perhaps you think this morning you don't deserve this. And I hope you do because none of us deserves this gift. But it's not about deserving. Look at the last line in Isaiah 53. The very last line that Isaiah writes about this servant says this, and interceded for the transgressors. He doesn't say that he interceded for his friends. He doesn't say that he interceded for the good people of this world. He doesn't even say that he interceded for the people who are trying to live a good and decent moral life. He says he interceded for the transgressors, for the people who, if it weren't for him, if it weren't for his life, death, and resurrection, and his his own intercession, these people would still be enemies of God. And so you don't have to be his friend this morning to experience these benefits. You don't even have to be a good person to experience these benefits. And you don't even have to try to be good to experience these benefits or to have these. Now, should we try to do these things? Yes, we should. But doing these things doesn't reward us with these rewards. These rewards come for us solely because Christ gives them to us in his life, death, and resurrection. And these rewards become ours because of Christ, because he has reconciled us with God. And simply by believing in him, believing that Christ has done this for you, All of this is yours. His reward is your reward. Eternal life is yours. Forgiveness of sins is yours. God's pleasure is yours. And he is satisfied with you. For Christ has done it. I want to finish out this morning with a passage from Ephesians chapter 2. Keith read from Ephesians chapter 1, and the next chapter begins with this verse. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And then moving it down to verse 4 says this, but God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, 
even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. He has raised us up together with Christ. And this Easter, as we celebrate the resurrection of the Lord, we not only celebrate his resurrection, but we celebrate what that means for you, what that means for me. That one day Christ will raise us up to be with him as well. And so in the meantime, we live our lives just as Mary, Mary, and the disciples live theirs. And we tell others about Christ. And tell others that they are forgiven because of the work that Christ has done. And tell others that Christ wants to reward them with his gift as they come to him by grace through faith. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you and we praise you for your goodness, for your kindness to us. We don't deserve your son by any means. Jesus, we don't deserve your work. We definitely don't deserve the rewards that you came to give us as well. But you freely give them to us. And you continue to intercede for us, the transgressors. Father, we pray that you would help us to live our lives in view of this resurrection. Help us to live our lives no longer as sinners who are enslaved to darkness, but Lord, as saints who have been saved by grace through faith. Help us to live our lives with our eyes on you. Help us, Lord, to tell others of this work that you have done, not only for us, but for them too. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.